Arrow Films is a leading independent entertainment distribution company established in 1991, operating in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, United States of America, and Canada. Arrow Films is dedicated to supporting upcoming and established filmmakers of dynamic new cinema and developing an inviolable slate of quality films that enjoy a lasting legacy across its award-winning branded labels, channels, and platforms. Arrow Films is also a leading restorer and theatrical distributor of classic and cult horror films, including landmark titles such as the 25th anniversary reissue of Cinema Paradiso, the 15th anniversary reissue of Donnie Darko, and the 30th anniversary reissue of Hellraiser. These lovingly restored films are brought back into cinemas nationwide with brand new look campaigns with wide-reaching distribution, including outdoor event status screenings at various cultural festivals, and as one-off bookings in local repertory cinemas and film societies. Aerofilms is also widely considered to be the global market leader in the premium home entertainment market, fueled by passionate and expert curation aligned with state-of-the-art in-house film restoration, resulting in highly sought-after bespoke Blu-ray editions of classic cult and horror films across its Aero Video and Aero Academy branded labels. Beloved by collectors, these ever-expanding brands continue to delight their growing international fan base with regular interactive live events, festival sponsorship, and retail stands presence. Our offering extends to truly limited edition box sets, as well as associated spin-off products, now including books and vinyl records. We are so happy to have Aero Video as one of our new sponsors. You can find them at www.aerofilms.com. While you're there, be sure to pick up some cool titles. For example, they have the brand new American Werewolf in London collection, which is beautiful. The complete Sartana collection, Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3, Toys Are Not For Children, a new edition of Al Pacino's Cruising, and let's not forget a limited edition copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and a limited edition copy of RoboCop. There's so much more I can't even get into them all, but trust me when I say they're fantastic. And we couldn't be happier to have them. So once again, visit Aerofilms at www.aerofilms.com and check out all of their brands from Aero Video, Aero Academy, Aero Films, and Aero TV. Cult filmmaker William Lustig loves movies. What some people don't know about the director slash producer of films like Maniac, the Maniac Cop series, and the blue-collar Death Wish ripoff film Vigilante is that he's also a passionate movie buff. Having worked for many years behind the scenes producing some definitive DVD editions of popular horror films with the company Anchor Bay, Lustig wanted more control over what he put out. And so, in the early 2000s, Lustig founded Blue Underground with the intention of putting out all the great films he had seen while exploring New York's famed 42nd Street. While the BU may not put out as many flicks as some bigger companies, they put so much love and care into all of their releases. In the past, Blue Underground has put out definitive editions of a huge portion of Dario Argento's filmography, Dawn of the Dead's first ever Blu-ray release, and a sizable collection of spaghetti westerns. Lately, Blue Underground has been putting out stellar 4K ultra high definition releases of catalog titles like Daughters of Darkness, Zombie, Maniac, and Vigilante. On top of that, they have new restorations of The Final Countdown and Lucho Fulci's New York Ripper on the way. You can find Blue Underground at blue-underground.com as well as on all the totes popular social medias. Once again, that's blue-underground.com. 
So uh, before we get to the topic at hand, as always, I have like an intro that I wrote. How are you? I haven't <laughs> talked to you much lately. Yeah, I'm all right. Um, I got some new vaccine um, side effects this morning, so that was exciting and it's frightening. But, you know, it's fine. Just fighting off the infection. It's all good. <laughs> well, you seem to be awfully chipper about it, so I guess that's <laughs> that's that's good. Yeah, you gotta be. It's important. Yeah. Like, um, w- what's weird for me, so a friend of mine, his 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 boyfriend works mm-hmm. in like i don't he i never i can never remember exactly what he does but he, he spent a lot of time studying covid and uh the effects and everything because for his job and ever since i got vaccinated so i i had covid mm-hmm. and i lost my sense of smell and everything and yeah taste i still kind of had and it started coming back slowly, but I st- a lot of things I couldn't smell. Ever since I got my second vaccine, more smells have been coming back, but they've been smelling different. Interesting. And he told he tells me it's because my body is relearning the um, what things are supposed to smell like. Weird. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, I I, I agree, <laughs> but I'm 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 staying hopeful that you know. Onions won't smell rancid my entire life. Oh, God. That would be true hell. Yeah. Coffee is okay. It's not, doesn't, doesn't smell how I remember it. Soda tastes like chemicals to me. That's so weird. Because I, my understanding is the way we process smell is mostly associations. So to totally lose those associations as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's super strange to me. I, I can't figure it out, but. I'm just trying to stay positive and trying to stay hopeful and yeah. hope that things in the long run end up working out for me. <laughs> I'm sure they will. All right. So since you got you're on a little bit of a time crunch, I will mm-hmm. make sure to um, we'll we'll get right on to the topic at hand and uh, go from there. All right. All right. So I'm gonna read the intro. You're gonna hear the dogs outside playing. I'm sure you can hear that no barking. Problem. <laughs> The boys are outside. I can I can picture them right now. They're outside messing with each other. Um, also, I meant to ask you. Um, yeah. I didn't put it in my um, intro because I didn't know the best way to word it. Um, I figured after I read my intro, we could because uh, normally we read the intro. I edit in the trailer. Uh, we should definitely uh, address some of the trigger warnings right off the top. Yeah. Do you want me to just do a quick trigger warning? Cool. So the trigger warnings for this one are going to definitely be rape. Child abuse, child sexual abuse, alcoholism, um, some drug use, and some pretty graphic descriptions, probably of all of those things. Yeah, Good? I think that about sums it up. Because <laughs> I, it, it, I didn't know the best way to eloquently put it. Because because mm-hmm. you posted about it that you're going to be doing the show, and you didn't mention what they were. I didn't because with trigger warnings, it's always tough too. Because while you want to let people know what's involved, sometimes even mentioning them can be negative for some people so yeah absolutely i think um my i've always just tried to be straight out with this stuff and um for me personally the way my triggers work if i know it's happening i can generally you know deal with it or i can make the decision okay i don't need to hear this one yeah, so i will say sense. as far as like in depth as well we're probably things are probably going to get graphic so it's you know, might as well just have that up front that we're not going to like or i don't plan on at least skirting around like what this movie's really about. Yeah, because I think it is important to yes. what the film is about. 100%. All right, well then I will I will start my intro. 
podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements, endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. Unfortunately, Nick couldn't be with us today, but I was able to pull in a really amazing guest host. Let's see if I can get this right. I've been practicing. <laughs> Josephine Maria Janicek Lachinsky. Really close. Les Chinsky. Les Chinsky. I was close. One of these times. It's cool. I think that was better than the first time. I Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who aren't aware, Josephine is a really talented writer who has this amazing knack for effortlessly blending her own life into different topics of film and film culture. On top of that, she has, she was producing a fantastic podcast called 31 Ghosts, where she would do spooky renditions of popular ghost stories. And finally, Josephine and I co-created an online genre film festival called Revenge Fest. She's been my friend for years, and I'm stoked to have her on the show. So thank you for coming out again, Josephine, especially on short notice. I didn't give you a whole lot of time to prep. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. You were lucky that I watched this movie. I was like in the middle of this movie when you texted me and I was like, oh man, let's talk about it. Let's do it. Perfect. Yeah. So without further ado, on today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show, Josephine and I will be discussing a film in which she chose, uh, which so happens to be the only video nasty we are, we've covered thus far from 1976 wow. by director Matt Simber. It's The Witch Who Came From The Sea. Millie Perkins plays Molly, a woman living in Los Angeles who adores her nephews, but is struggling with her own alcoholism and traumatic past. Molly and her sister Kathy have a tumultuous relationship as they find themselves constantly bickering over their sea captain father. Molly chooses to romanticize the man and his exploits, while Kathy is often far more open and honest about her issues with him. While Molly spends her time watching television with her nephews or works the late, late night shift at the bar she's employed at, she frequently has violent fantasies of sexually mutilating athletic, good-looking men. However, when the news comes out that two star football players have been killed and those their deaths resemble her fantasy, Molly begins down a fantastical trip where reality and fantasy blend as we delve deeper into her, her own deep-seated trauma. The Witch Who Came From The Sea is unlike a lot of uh, filmmaker Matt Simber's usual filmography, which was filled with exploitation, sex films, and then eventually professional wrestling. The screenplay is credited to Robert uh, Robert Tom, who wrote the flick while in a hospital bed. He was sick and couldn't do much else but write. His wife, the film star's Millie Perkins, struggled to pay for his hospital bills, and The Witch Who Came From The Sea was written as a way to earn a quick buck and pay off his bills. Robert Tom got rather personal, adding an element from, of his and Millie's childhoods and adding some sensationalism to help the picture sell. While Perkins wasn't happy with the film and had little interest in doing it, she agreed to do so because she knew what she had to do to help her husband get out of the hospital and get those bills paid for, pay for. And I personally think she gave one hell of a performance. While the film, sim I'm sorry, what? I said I would agree. Sorry to interrupt your intro. No, it's no, great. it's fine. Well, this is this is actually my favorite part that I wrote because it's just so out of nowhere. While the film cinematography is credited to Ken Gibb, who would go on to shoot such pornographic fare such as The Temple of Poon? tongue-in-cheek and the adventures of butt girl and the wonder wench <laughs> a lot of the film's style is due to the involvement of a young dean kundi he made a deal with matt simber that if he, he was allowed if he allowed kundi to help uh he could get him anamorphic lenses gear and uh other things to kind of add more uh, more prestige look to this film two years later dean kundi would be using the same widescreen photography on a little film called halloween 
Whether or not Matt Simber intended to make a thought-provoking rumination about trauma or was more interested in making an exploitation film with a great cast, everything came together for the cast and crew of The Witch Who Came From The Sea. The film stars Millie Perkins, Lonnie Chapman, Vanessa Brown, Peggy Fury, George Buck Flower, and Stan Ross as Jack Dracula. From 1976, this is Matt Simber's The Witch Who Came From The Sea. Turn on your television set. Find out what's happening in the real world. See it in black and white. God made all of us perfect. Truly, he did. How close do you want to be to the woman in your life? You don't know if it's true or not unless it's on television. Why was Grandpa lost at sea? I don't know. Because he was perfect. Too good to live on land. (gasps) Who is she? She's a witch, come out of the sea. She's not a witch. She's beautiful. Every time you turn around, you see him. said you you picked this film because it just so happened to be one that you were watching yes um this is my first time seeing it i assume it's your first time as well yeah i watched it twice for this podcast but i yes it was the first first time first period viewing it so if you don't mind me asking what i know this this was just added to the criterion channel and it was a criterion staff pick this film and i am a snob so i only go by the criterion channel oh you definitely that and shut <laughs> that's, up. A that's a joke. That's a joke. That's <laughs> uh, This first came on my radar, which I, even though I hadn't seen it up until just recently, was because a couple years ago, Arrow Video uh, out of the mm-hmm. UK, they did a um, a box set called the American Horrors Sets, or um, I don't remember exactly what they called it, but it was essentially low budget regional filmmaking of stuff that hadn't been seen. Uh, film critic Stephen Thrower kind of helped put it all together. And it had like this, it had Malatesta's Carnival of Blood, and a couple other things in it. And so I'd f- heard about this film. And when you when you hear a title that's as on the nose, or not on the, as long-winded and fantastical as The Witch Who Came mm-hmm. From the Sea, it's kind of hard Evocative. to forget that. Yeah. Um, what Extremely. brought you, so what exactly made you decide to watch this film? So I'm going to be honest, it was the cover art, which isn't super common for me. Um, Of course, that's always the first thing that brings you in, but I'm not someone who drinks my wine based on the labels. Yeah. So it was like, but that cover art, so the cover art of the Criterion release and the American release, um, there's a really good version, I think that was for Italy. That's a different um, art. But for this one, the artist actually ripped off comic book artist Frank Frazetta, and it is from a Vampirella. 
Is that the cover. one with her and the scythe? With the, yes. Yes, that is. And like the, the weird like cat or no, it's a, it's a lizard in the background. Um, yes, it is absolutely that. And it, it's such like a weird, it's really gothic, but just so, um, you know, she's naked, but to me it felt desexualized, just this powerful entity. Yeah. And that is what this cover is ripped off of. Um, and that came out, I think, in 1971. So a couple of years before this film. And that immediately I was like, okay, and I, I'm a big fan of Frank Frazetta. I have a love-hate relationship with how he handles subject matter, but... Um, you can at least appreciate his work, even if you don't necessarily yeah. appreciate him at times. Yeah, he, exactly. He's a great artist. Um, and this film, and I, yeah, I have very little interest. I think you, this will not be surprising to you. I have very little interest in most of the video nasties, um, generally I'm not speaking. Surprised. I'm, I'm kind of the <laughs> same way. I have yeah. a morbid fascination with them because yes. it happened. Yeah. But the couple that I have seen, most of them are pretty boring. Exactly. And, I, and I'm anti-censorship, so it's not like I'm against the video nasties. But I am – most of them aren't – yeah, like you said, they're not interesting. Or they aren't interesting – they don't in, in, uh, cover things in an interesting way. But anytime I find a movie where the, the like, flavor text or the text bringing you into the film is about, you know, in this case, a woman's sexual fantasies blending with murder, I'm in. Like I was like, all right, I don't even need to know more. I'm in. Um, I also, I appreciate, I will say, we talked about trigger warnings before with this particular film, there's no trigger warning on the, I think on the criterion text Which or even surprising. anything to hint. Yeah, yeah. Or even anything to hint that like, this is going to be about, you know, child sexual assault, yeah. but the way they build it, I think from like the first scene I knew, I was like, Oh, like the first conversation between the sisters, I was like, Oh, that dad was a pedophile like right away. And then they build it slowly. I, I had that um, same thought and, yeah. It's hard for me to necessarily say what made me think that. Only thing I can really come to is because it reminded me of another kind of 70s exploitation film that mm -hmm. went there. So maybe I just had that association where I was like, if this goes there, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. But I'm also kind of hoping it doesn't, just mainly because it, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, but it's one of those things I can, I can, I can handle depending on how it's depicted. Exactly. And that's going back to that depiction. You mentioned that, you know, the, the credited cinematographer is a is a pornographer yeah. that, or became a pornographer. Yeah, he's, and, he, he was shooting like a lot of Matt Simber stuff. But yeah, you know, when, once you go to tongue in cheek, it's there's no coming back. <laughs> yeah, but with this film, what actually struck me and this may have been with knowing that this is a movie that's probably going to be censored in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, like the scenes where she is torturing or about to have sex with or anybody, any character is about to have sex with someone else. There's a lot of um, sex implied sex in this movie. You don't see a lot of sex, but any scene where like we're about to get sexy, it becomes very unpornographic to me. Like yeah. it was fascinating to me that the first time you even see like on screen harm is like one of the final scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was really well shot, I thought, oh, but yeah. strangely so. And, you know, and I'm just going to let the, the audience know that we're kind of rushing through things because we are in a yeah. little bit of a time crunch. Um, but um, I completely agree. It's actually one of those. It's, it's very fascinating to me. Um, how effective this movie was with nothing. So we're going to spoil some things. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, please give the spoiler warning. Sorry. Yeah, spoiler warning. Though people who have been listening to the show for a while should know that by now. Um, yeah, and I mean, men are going to be killed. That's the big yes, spoiler warning. Yes, but like, so like <laughs> the, the first extended 
and I mean extended because I, at one point I forgot it was a, a, a like fantasy. And I was just like, why did the audio get weird for so long? I forgot it was mm-hmm. a fantasy where she's imagining or uh, potentially not a fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, imagining being with those football players. Um, like once he, she ties them up and, you know, he, she takes a, a, a razor blade to him. We see nothing. It's just very extended, almost pornographic sounds of, of the man groaning. But that mm-hmm. was just making me squirm in my seat. It was so effectively yeah. done. We saw literally nothing. The only time we saw blood, which was one of the couple times that Amanda looked up from her screen because she was doing something, uh, <laughs> it, a lot of the blood looked terrible, and that was less effective than when we saw nothing. Absolutely. And I do like that they, the reveal of like what she's actually doing. I mean, they, you, they hint at what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, when they finally, you know, she finally goes to town on a guy on screen, you see his like, you know, untanned, but he's a clearly tanned. Um, so you see a little nudity and then it's just, it's, it's kind of ludicrous, but it's really, it's satisfying to me because it's like, okay, I knew this was happy. I knew this was happening and now we're seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I have a thing about razor blades too. Like the, all those scenes I was, I watched it the second time with my partner and I was like clutching him like, ah, <laughs> ah even though you're not seeing anything. Yeah. It, it's it's I it, it's interesting too because like you know I I'm I'm I don't necessarily do it with newer movies because newer movies I'll explain in a second but like I I'm fascinated by watching credits just mm-hmm. especially for these lower movies because I just like to see you can get, really get an idea of what this film what a film is like by looking at the credits even if you don't know who people are when you mm-hmm. see like a lot of recurring names coming back and forth and little things like that you're like oh this is a small crew they had people doing multiple things it's like me and uh, my co-host nick we found out sissy spacek was doing costumes on on some indie films for a while before she was an actress because we were watching the credits mm-hmm. um and i noticed so an actor a character actor that i've always enjoyed he played one of the police officers uh um George Buck Flower, he mm-hmm. did the casting in this movie. So it's like, to me, it's like, okay, this feels like a, a small, it was obviously a small budget film that was made as a way to make some money for um, uh, the screenwriter's hospital bills. Um, Millie Perkins didn't really want to do it, but she was going to anyways. Um, and it just sound, it just felt like a small little production where they're getting all their friends to come together and do these things. I'm mostly interested in how Matt Simber got connected with this because I have seen a couple of his films. I've seen, especially the can, mm-hmm. the Candy Tangerine Man. This is not the type of film he makes, but this is the de- this type of film is definitely my, very much my shit. Where we we've me and you have talked at length in the past about. At least on my end, uh, I don't want to speak for you. Where I have this mm-hmm. love-hate fascination with exploitation films, where I, um, most of them are not nearly as good as their premise would lead them to be. Mm-hmm. But I'm always going in hopeful because this is what, these are the types of film I'm hoping to get something that on the surface is a exploitation drive-in type of movie, um, but is way more has way more art and way more style and way more going on underneath mm-hmm. the surface than anyone would expect like th- these this is the type of like exploitation film that gives me hope when i go in and watching these like to find gems like this and Definitely. most of matt simber's career didn't have many gems like this so it's 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 just an interesting combination of forces where all these people came together to make something that's too weird to be a horror film especially at the time mm-hmm. um 
and it, it should not appeal to the driving audiences they were trying to appeal to. Sorry, I was yeah. going to rant for a bit. No, you're good. I actually, I'm glad you brought up, um, you know, seeing the names on, at the credits. I one name caught my eye. Aside from like Matt Simber, who seems like such an, uh, you know, kind of a standout person. A lot of the other actors are, you know, from other exploitation films. They're mm -hmm. character actors. But one name that stood out to me was Sam Chu Lin, who was the newscaster who was announcing, yes. um, who was announcing these horrible murders, like kind of in the background. He was, when this film came out, he was working for CBS. He's one of the first Asian Americans to work for not just CBS, but all four networks. He's mm -hmm. this very prominent um, newscaster, specifically a you know, journalist, Asian American journalist. And he it was part of this film in that really small role, you know, whether or not it was just a clip they used or whatever. But I was the fact that he's like credited and he was involved was just so um, interesting to me. I'm sure he just knew somebody on the, you know, for the movie, but um and it's not listed anywhere on his on his wikipedia page by the way no <laughs> i noticed it, they left that out <laughs> it is on his imdb <laughs> yes yes it is uh, um but yeah what if just kind of a weird little you know credit there the cast in this film is, is fascinating to me because mm -hmm. like it, it's i you know I'm, I'm no matt simber expert but it seems mm -hmm. definitely like uh from what i've seen to be one of the more star-studded cast he's worked with. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Millie Perkins is was a big-name actress. Um, you know, hadn't worked with uh, Monty Hellman. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, she was in The Diary of Anne Frank, I believe, if I'm remembering yeah, correctly. Yeah, that, like, that was her breakout. Yeah. Um, Lonnie Chapman, who played Long John. You know, he's one of those those fantastic character actors who's been in a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. um, also became... He started off as my least favorite character, became one of my favorite characters, weirdly enough, in this film. Um, and then even like um, the 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 older barmaid Doris from what oh, what, fantastic. What a little bit of research I was I was doing at the time. I think she was teaching. She thinks she was teaching um, costume design at UCLA. Wow. And Matt Simber essentially begged her to come out of retirement to come do this film because he was trying to get as many. Uh, reputable actors as possible and she eventually said yes just so he would stop calling her <laughs> so like to... i mean vanessa brown too is another yeah. um, you know actress kind of in, in the same vein as millie perkins she played a lot of like historical she was in a tarzan movie um kind of a young babe grown up yeah a little bit i think this was her last role too so like, yeah. to me it just felt like you know, like I'm not going to pretend to speak for Matt Simber and know, really know a whole lot about him, but just knowing his career, uh, and actually he was Jane Jane Mansfield's last husband. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I saw that. It, it was interesting to me that it, to me it felt like I assume he was he he was friends with someone on the crew. Mm -hmm. Is how this could have come come across his desk. And, um, you know, he probably saw it as like, well, this is a chance to work with Millie Perkins. She's a big name actress. I can probably get some other actors to do it, too. You know, it, to me, it, it feels like, well, here's a chance to make something theoretically bigger, or at least a bigger talent and do something interesting. Um, whether or not he, you know, believed in the story or believed in the script, who knows? But I think it's such an interesting combination of things. Yeah, I will say um, when I was doing some research there's an actor named richard kennedy who played the other um one of the detectives yeah who's kind of you know trying to corner what's going on mm -hmm. he worked with matt simber in a couple of pictures and kind of in what would seem more minor roles but as we know on a set things are very different 
different. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wonder if there's a connection there as well. I wonder how many of the other actors also cross over with Matt Simber, but definitely Richard Kennedy yeah. is one. Yeah, and it's and at, at the time period and, and you know in the seventies, some of these actors who you know have been around for a while, you know, who are doing weekly spots on cowboy shows, and you know, someone like Lonnie mm-hmm. Chapman, that kind of type of thing he was doing you know they they probably get to a certain point and they get to a certain point people don't really they're not getting calls anymore you know they're not you know they're not getting the calls to come out and do the big movies so you know they probably they probably think it's like well this guy's calling me i have a mortgage to pay let's go do this (laughs) weird movie what what's the worst that can happen and (laughs) i think sometimes like me banned by the UK. That's that was the worst that could happen. Yeah, like to me, what I was I was really happy to see is that none of these actors treated the material less than. Mm-hmm. Like they all came in were like doing really interesting, moving performances. Like, yeah, I wouldn't say this film is camp at all. No, no. Yeah. Like maybe some of the line der- deliveries are a little goofy or something because because mm-hmm. of bad writing, but like. Like Millie Perkins, she's in every like she's she's dedicated in every scene. Like I the the scene where she's getting the mermaid tattoo and mm-hmm. uh, that that phenomenal character actor Dan Ross, yeah, yeah, is tattooing her and yeah, goofy Dracula. eyes and everything, and she's giving this really wonderful speech. And I was like, this is a very well directed scene. Mm-hmm. But I came with friends, didn't I? No, lady. Mm. McPeak. Beautiful man named McPeak. Dark, dark. From the sea. He shaves. Sure, lady. He took me home with him. You're a beautiful lady. Any guy would. The mermaid's tail won't go down too far, will it? Just right. Just Perfect. Just rising from the curly black sea. Well, that's right, isn't it? I mean, you're an artist, aren't you? An artist. And I don't believe in anything dirty or obscene. I don't either. But I I have dreams sometimes. Everybody's got dreams. Can't help them. No. Why do they call you Jack Dracula? That's my name. I made up a name for myself when I was a little girl. (sighs) Molly, Contiki, Polynesia, Easter. I swore it was my real name. Easter Island, the Contiki. Do you remember the Contiki, the raft? And Polynesia was the name of the parrot in Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, but Jack Dracula is my real name. You know, movies like this don't get stuff like this. Like, don't get scenes like this. They have great acting. Uh, like I said, uh, Dean Coondy was on set helping shoot it, and that worked out with Matt Simber's style because he, he knew that they didn't have a whole lot of time for multiple setups, and Dean Coondy's like, let's shoot this film very wide, and shoot as many long takes as possible so that way we can get through it faster. And it, it has, it, you almost feel like you're gliding through the scenes. Yeah, I think that's a really accurate description. Um, I will say too, like there are so many actors 
who knew not just Millie Perkins, who delivered these performances that easily could have been like jokes, like um, Long John could have easily been like this old fool. And he really ended up not being Doris, you know, these very like interesting characters who, who are real people. Like I, you know, I mean, Long John, I've known that bar owner. I've known that, you know, bartender, like, yeah. And like, very interesting. Yeah. Like, and like I said, he started off as a character and that as like, when you, when you first are introduced to him and he's like you know, mm-hmm. threatening everyone and being like, I hate you guys. And like, Oh, this guy's kind of abrasive, kind of a jerk. Just trying to sleep with all the women in the bar. Yeah. But by the end of it, like he cares so much. He really does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I, as I was watching the movie, like I said, Amanda's just kind of listening in on it. She's like, what do you think of this movie? And and I just, I didn't, at the time I could not like put it into words. I was like, I'm just endlessly fascinated by this. Yeah, I think, I mean, and I think I like your description of it as like a fantasy as well. Like from the very first moment when she's describing to her nephews on the beach, you know, oh, your, your grandfather was a, you know, was a sea captain. He was a good man. It's like very, um, mm-hmm saturn and you're like okay this is this is very a fantastic description she's giving mm-hmm. um and even but even then i had no idea until she talks to her sister what exactly the grandfather's deal was i assumed he had like run out on them but clearly that wasn't really the case yeah because that's how they <laughs> they they set it up uh um, yeah and then when you actually put together like you know because she kept saying well he he died at sea or something. He's lost at sea, lost at sea. Yeah, yeah, when you've put together what she means by that or like how she's handling that, I I, I audibly go went, oh shit, when I put it to, when yeah. I finally put it all together. Like, oh, that's insane. Yeah. And dark. Yeah. Yeah. And like it's it's crazy to me that this movie got made at this time because like I know um this film struggled with uh, obviously censorship uh, mm-hmm. in the UK and even in the United States. And yeah. a lot of people were saying to him, it's like, you can't make a movie about this. And, he, you know, he was defending it, obviously being like, why not? Like, I'm not. <laughs> Somebody needs to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like well, pretty much exactly what he said is like, someone needs to talk about this. Why is an exploitation filmmaker the only one ballsy enough to try to make this movie? Why isn't more people? Why aren't more people trying to talk about this? Why is the guy who created the gorgeous ladies of wrestling the only one who wants to talk about trauma? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's. Um, I I think that is a theme among like exploitation defenders as well mm-hmm. that they were the only movies that did end up touching on these things. Unfortunately, you know exploitation had the same gatekeeping that Hollywood did, just in a different way. So we don't get to hear a multitude of voices, but we know that at least this film was influenced by, you know, his wife yeah. and by a real experience and things like that. Yeah. Like another one that I don't think is nearly as entertaining of a film as The Witch You Came From the Sea, but the film that reminded me of was from 1972. It's a movie called Toys Are Not For Children by mm-hmm. Stanley H. Brasloff, and it's it's kind of a similar storyline um, that's dealing with trauma and and sexual oppression and uh assault for, as from a child um as a child and mm-hmm. all these other things and it's like once again it's a drive-in filmmaker making a weird little film that no like the big guys that you know weren't gonna touch and, and if they were gonna touch it it was gonna be in such an offhanded way like you get a lot of movies in the 50s and 60s that are in some way about this especially 
um, when it comes to like men and boys, Mm -hmm. but it always tends to be like anti-gay or it's, and they don't show anything. They just show like the kids going into the house and saying, be careful of the, you know, beware of gay men. Yeah. Um, so to have it be touched in a real way is fascinating. And it probably also work doesn't, doesn't help that a lot of these films since, you know, Matt Simber, Stanley Brasloff, and mm-hmm. anyone else who's tackled stuff like this. Any exploitation filmmaker, Russ Meyer, any of them, anytime they have a screenplay that's touching on something, obviously they know their audience, they know what they have to sell. So I think what sometimes hurts their point is the fact that, you know, okay, we do need blood, we do need sex, we do need a pair of boobs in this film. So mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes their, their message, whether or not it's intentional or not, because I think there's a lot of times for a lot of filmmakers, a lot of unintentional genius, things they don't really realize they are trying to speak on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think some of their points get sullied by the fact that, like, well, you know, we need to have a sex scene in the 15-minute mark or else this movie won't sell in Kansas. <laughs> yeah, I will say with this film in particular, I um, loved the depiction of, you know, Molly, the main character, as a repressed sexual person. Like she is, she's having a sexual relationship that we see, a sexual relationship that is loving and open, clearly. Mm-hmm. But um, she, the way that she morphed her trauma into struggling with her own sexuality, because I wouldn't call her dad, you know, a lot of her trauma was from her father, who is, who is a very, you know, Honestly, he looks like a dad. The whole thing's very, very creepy. But she yeah. ends up targeting men who she's attracted to and mm-hmm. who she who she sees as perfect. And so she's morphed this like very uncomfortable introduction to sex, you know, and sexuality with her adult sexual desires. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a kind of a fascinating journey that we go on there. It's honestly reminds me of hand i think handled better uh but it reminds me of kind of like the basic plot point of a lot of rape revenge films where mm-hmm. uh you know a, a woman harnesses her own sexuality and uses it to then get revenge on trap yeah who have done her wrong like that's the whole plot point of uh i'll spit on your grave is mm-hmm. after this traumatic incident she's like well i'm then gonna utilize what i know is a weakness for you to lure you in so I can fucking cut your head off or whatever. Yeah, I do think this is kind of a, uh, a like, inversion of that, only because it's about, mm-hmm. her, like, it's centering Molly. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't believe, yeah, but but definitely always taking that sexuality. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't even call this a weaponization, which is fascinating, until, actually, it does become a weaponization when um, Billy Bat shows up, yeah. and she, like, accuses him of trying to rape her. Yeah. Um, and then uses that to get to her real objective. Like, what an evil genius. Yeah. Um, like, what? As soon as she did that, I was like, damn, girl, you are good. Well, I want to. Disgusting I wanna, way. I want to <laughs> return uh, back to that scene here mm-hmm. in a minute. But no, yeah. I completely agree. Like, to me, this film, this feels like something a. A, a a a young filmmaker would make now like mm-hmm. how it, it's you know it's right in the middle of when a lot of those films were being made um so it feels very contemporary to our times now because it's a it's a it's commenting on those things whether it realizes it's doing that or not it feels like something you know i'm, I'm struggling to think of any names right now but say you know it, it kind of feels like like a film that a filmmaker would make now, it's like, hey, you know, the, the, here is a a subgenre of horror. What what can I do to turn that on its head? Yeah, 
Definitely. And I, th- I would love, because, you know, this film is a little rough around the edges, which is one of the things I love, I, I actually like about it. Mm-hmm. But I think th- this film would be ripe for a remake. I think so, too. And I would, lo- and by a female filmmaker. Oh, I mean, 100%. I want to see, like, uh, you know, the, the, the remake of Black Christmas, but The Witch Who Came From the Sea. Yeah. Like, uh, like honestly, like I, th- I think a per- it might be a little on the nose, but I think uh, a perfect film, like a perfect person to do it would be the the woman who directed the lure. Oh yes, because like her, her, yes, yeah, her visual style. Like I think this would be like a perfect break into American filmmaking. If she, if she hasn't done anything already, I'm I, I'm not too sure what she's done after the lure. Um, if she has made an American film yet. She's been in a couple of anthologies that were American, UK. Um, but yeah, her name is Agnieszka Smoczynska. Yeah, I, I I reviewed the lore on a very early episode of the show, and I struggled with the Polish name. <laughs> well, that's, uh, yeah, she's, uh, yeah, she's, as you know, the lore is like one of my favorite uh, films. And I love it too. She is, that, that is such a good call. I, I'm ready. Let's start a campaign. Let's go to change.org right now. Like a, we'll make a petition. Like, yeah. You know, now is the time. If promising young woman can get can get nominated for a couple of Oscars, I think we can get the witch who came from the sea remade. Now <laughs> yeah, is definitely. the time. Yeah, definitely. I do think that uh, promising woman it helps that you know the director was a millionaire. But we'll get we'll kickstart it. It'll be fine. <laughs> I actually did not. I did not know that. Um, yeah. But no, I want to go back to the scene where you you were mentioning when Molly was. Um, and Billy Billy Bat had the, which is a yeah. terrible name had their their scene together where yes. she accused him of of trying to trying to rape her. Um, I absolutely love that scene because for not only all the reasons you said where she like you know she used it she used it against him, but I also love too that it blends this this line of is she actually some supernatural force. Because mm-hmm. I love the scene when she's behind the bed and she, her hand comes up and she's crawling up and her voice is augmented and she's giving this very like grandiose speech, uh, especially right after you know they had the whole conversation of the birth of Venus. And I was like, oh shit, is there some supernatural force at work on this? I don't know. And then like I loved all like the quick flashes later on in the film of her on a raft with what looked to be like deca- like you know cut up bodies and it's like yeah this... raft of Medusa yeah yes <laughs> there's so much going on and I, I you 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 see this criticism on online all the time where people automatically don't like a movie if they don't instantly get it mm-hmm. um, I love if I don't understand a movie. Because it makes if I then I want to keep going back to it. It's like I don't completely know if I understand this movie from beginning to end, and that's what's going to bring me back to it. Yeah. Um, I will say so. I want to go back to that uh, the first scene that Billy Bat kind of has alone with Molly. They have some very like kind of funny uh, banter at the bar before yes. when he invites her and Long John to the party. Oh, yeah. But, um, and actually, that's, that's one thing I really like about Molly real quick is the fact that yeah. she's not like she comes across at the beginning as a very timid, like, oh, I'm naive, a naive person. But then like when she starts showing her personality, it's like, oh, you know what's going on. Yeah, you, she's you are she's very clever. aware. Yeah, you're clever. She's savvy. Yeah, extremely. Yeah. And so um, one thing that struck me with especially the scene later with Billy Bat when when she, um, you know, 
he strikes her after she has kind of attacked him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something that happens when you have PTSD or CPTSD um, that this, this like struck me um, in this film. And I, I'm a survivor who, who has PTSD as a result. And something that happens, especially when you're a young adult is you start latching onto narratives and they aren't always like mythological it'll just be like you start telling stories about yourself or about what happened to make sense of what happened Mm -hmm. especially if something happened when you were a child and you couldn't fully understand or grasp what was happening and that's something that you work on in therapy you kind of um grab the string of that narrative and start to unravel it start understanding how that helped you cope etc with molly she had this whole narrative built up that, oh, yes, father was a sea captain. He was a good man. He would never hurt me because you don't want to believe the adults in your life would ever hurt you. Um, and then she is introduced by Billy Bat to this amazing character, this very clean love goddess coming from the sea. Um, mm-hmm. And she was born out of this violence towards her father. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was like a switch in her narrative. It's like she latched on to that um, this really to me, one of the more beautiful Greek myths um, in, in that it's gory. It's like this beautiful horror story. Um, and I want to talk really briefly about what that story is. So Aphrodite has two origin stories. One is that she's the daughter of a guy that, uh, or a lady that Zeus slept with, you know, the old like Zeus is everybody's dad yeah. story. And then the other one, because Greek myths were regional and eventually when they're adopted by the Romans, things start to change is that, the gods, Poseidon and Zeus's father, uh, their father was the Titan Cronus, and he, to punish his son, Poseidon, cut his balls off and threw them into the sea. And then from the, the floating sperm was born Aphrodite. But another part of that myth is that the blood from that act created the Furies, who are another um, female entity in Greek mythology that go after men who have done something wrong, or wronged mm-hmm. women in particular. So, like, that whole family of mythology is a very pro-feminine, like, vengeful uh, mythology that that results in this beautiful, you know, love goddess who in some ways is very pure, but is also very vengeful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that particular myth for her to latch onto is fantastic. And what I saw happening is in the next scene when Billy Bad is like, oh, there's other things. Do you want to try some other drugs? Come into my room. And she's like, okay. I saw her kind of transition from this very naive you know, sea captain's daughter to, okay, now I'm going to be the witch who came from the sea. Now I am transitioning into this new persona. Um, and I, I'm embracing this thing that I may or may not have already been doing, which is torturing and killing men. Yeah, was that before, after she then got the mermaid tattoo? So I don't remember that timeline. Let me think. I think that it's, oh, you know, it's after because that night is when she sleeps with, um, you know, McKean. The, or McPeak, sorry, McPeak, the guy who she's really targeting. Yes, and I think uh, the shaving she guy. Goes, yeah, she goes during the day or whatever to get the tattoo, and then she doesn't want to show Long John her body mm-hmm. because yeah, she's okay. got the tattoo. Which, by the way, like, having sex with someone directly after you got, like, a full torso tattoo, okay, like, brave. Yeah. Um, you know, brave. I, I wouldn't do it. I don't but, even like know. putting a shirt on after I've gotten a tattoo. I'm like, oh, no, oh my God, I, No, oh. <laughs> yeah, I have, like, a 16-inch tattoo, and, like, I – it was – yeah, there was nothing, nothing that would make you sweat or like have to rub up against anything was happening at oh, yeah. all. Like the like that just shows how much of a badass she is. That she goes <laughs> true, and gets a fresh tattoo from I, what I'm going to assume is a very unclean shop. However, however, <laughs> I will give Jack Dracula a little bit of credit. He did have 
it it looked like the actor at least looked at like tattoo footage because like he had yeah. like the the like the piece of paper towel that he's using to wipe up the ink and everything. I was like, okay, it seems relatively researched to an extent, and maybe that's what it was like getting a tattoo in the seventies. But you know, she just got a, a a very large tattoo right on her midsection, um, and then goes and have sex right afterwards. And then you know, while it's still fresh, is rubbing blood into it and everything. It's like. <laughs> I can't even like I, said, I can't even put a shirt on if I when I got a tattoo I'm like oh no it hurts ow <laughs> yeah like it's and I'm just terrified of infection you know yeah um, I didn't care about infection in 1976 <laughs> that scene with Jack Dracula too what an interesting um, depiction of a tattoo artist because you see him in like the first scene when her nephews want to get tattoos and he kind of intentionally scares them off like kind of for as a joke mm-hmm. from his shop. But he's she's t- doing that amazing monologue, and he's just so I don't know. Red is very kind to me, like kindly yes, listening to her. The same thing. And he was not sexualizing her at all, which is how tattoos should be. Like as someone who has gotten some, you know, large scale tattoos, like your artist should never make you feel uncomfortable or like sexualize you in any way. And he was like such a good, you know, professional artist, and I was very impressed. Yeah, and you know, even when he did have a comment, which is just, you know, like, you know, you're a beautiful woman, who wouldn't want to go out on a date with you? Whatever the hell he it said. It was like, like, yeah, encouraging. Yeah, was like, you yeah, know, he said it in a girl. nice way, like, oh, you're a good guy, Jack Dracula. And, th- and that entire scene killed me, because she, then she went on, a, like, uh, like a little tangent about, like, nicknames she had, and he just kept going, yeah, but Jack Dracula's my real name. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, and it felt to me like he was a real character at that point, because it was like, oh, he probably has a story all the time. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, he probably, all the time, people come in and they're like, oh, I have hardcore nicknames, too. And he's like, yeah, okay, okay, great. Yeah. Well, it's, it reminds me, actually, so... um you know Emma, our house guest, uh, who's living with us currently. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we all kind of play a game when we watch movies together, where we we look at for people in the movie or people in the background, and then we try to we, we pretty much pick about, pick people out and be like that person's in their own movie. Mm-hmm. Everyone, every character in this movie felt like they were in their own movie. Like it yeah. felt like they were doing something before the scene began, and they're gonna go do something after it ends too. It didn't feel like they were just sounding boards for, for Molly. Um, they all felt they all felt fleshed out. They all felt lived in. They all felt real. Like Jack Dracula, he you know, he feels like his own character. He feels like you know, as soon as he's done tattooing this, he's gonna go tattoo a poorly done skull on someone's back or something. And you know, and because what I liked about this film is, I feel like Molly had a good scene. With every mm-hmm. single character. Yeah. You know, I didn't really feel like any of the characters were there, just there. Um, And I and I appreciate that. Like, I, I feel like everyone had their own kind of little mini arcs where the way I feel about someone when the movie begins is not how I, begins is not how I feel after the movie's ended. Yeah, I think that, um, I would actually like to see like a um, Richard Linklater's film Slacker where you mm-hmm. follow like a different character in every scene. I would like to see that through this little like seaside uh, California community. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, I felt the same way when I saw um, let's scare Jessica to death where it's like, mm-hmm. I, I want yes. more of this weird community. Who are these people? What's going on? Like if you, if you can build a world that, that I want to theoretically live in or explore more within you know, an hour and 25 minutes, you've done, you've done your job. And that's kind of how I felt about this. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I was, I was right. really one. I, I I liked this film because, like I said, it's it's kind of right up my alley. Where it's on the surface is an exploitation film, you know, that would play at the drive-in somewhere, but under the surface, it's something more. What much like what scared Jessica to death or Daughters of da- Daughters of Darkness? You know, these films that have almost like this. Um, high art bent to it whether or not they realize they're doing it or even like a lot of Romero's films um mm-hmm. I but I also appreciate that Criterion has given films like this a a place to live like Shudder will put films up like this all quite frequently and they actually yeah. do a pretty decent job at, at least sometimes with trigger warnings um but I feel like this type of film this film is strange because I feel like a lot of I follow a lot of different horror groups who, and there's always people on there, be like, oh, Shudder's not worth it. There's nothing good on there. I feel like a film like this could come to Shudder, and some people will discover it, but I think it's going to, most of the Shudder audience might not enjoy it. Um, and mm-hmm. while I don't know if necessarily a good chunk of the Criterion audience will j- enjoy it, I feel like since Criterion doesn't put movies like this up very often, they're more willing to give it a shot. Yeah, definitely. And it's... Even for a film like this to have the Criterion label is a like a. I know we we've talked we talked personally before about um, kind of Criterion's failings of acknowledging the power that their label has, especially when it comes to uplifting you know black directors and black filmmakers, um, and you know a wider array of women filmmakers. But that that label itself does so much, and I think for a film like this, it you know I definitely. Knowing it's a video nasty, I would have like if it had been marketed to me as a video nasty, I probably wouldn't have watched this movie. Yeah. But it happening to be on Criterion, having this fantastic cover, reading in the first line, oh, she envisions you know torture scenes with muscular men. I was like, cool, I'm in. Okay. Oh, and, and speaking of the torture scene of muscular men, like that opening scene of her on the beach and just the, the close ups and like the bulges, the bulging muscles. Yes. Yes, like that, or the one guy who's. You know, they, they do a close-up on his crotch, and you can see the veins. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. they, they, they're they going for it. And I, I know enough horror fans or you know who would see that scene because there's a bent of homophobia in the horror community that people aren't really talking about that would mm-hmm. just turn the movie off right away. But I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm glad to see an exploitation filmmaker doing his job and exploiting someone who's not just women. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And those, those strong, um, there's something so satisfying about having these extremely strong men be the kind of the focus of her ire. Like, cause the first people she goes after are athletes, are professional athletes. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, like, you know, you are targeting the, who should be the most dangerous people to you, but you're just going for it. And we're going to exploit their deaths and, you know, exploit this, you know, what could have been a very typical threesome scene into something much darker. Exactly. Sorry about the wind. Um, I got the. I don't have. I don't have very good airflow upstairs, so I got the window open. Um, no, exactly. And then, like, I just. I loved you. You said it best earlier when you described uh, Molly as kind of an evil genius. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I, I think the ending of this movie is incredibly sad. Yes. Um, and I don't remember. I'm getting the timeline mixed up in my mind. But I believe it's during her final scene at Long John's house. Which, by the way, I just want to walk through Long Long John's living area because it's just it's <laughs> the basement of the bar with this crazy 1970s. Yeah, and he has that amazing view the of core. the beach. Like honestly, mm-hmm. this felt like the same. Like if someone were to tell me that this 
these characters and this world lives in the same seaside village that the fog takes place in, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I can believe it. I can see it. It just it just feels very much of its time. Um, but there's, uh, I believe it's during um, Molly's scene, you know, in Wong John's apartment with um, uh, Doris and Wong John, where uh, she essentially overdoses. I know she's kind of like rambling uh, throughout it. Uh and she she mm-hmm. has the seat she has this moment where she's saying, Do you know how you know I can get all these beautiful men to to go home with me? And she kinda walks through it. And it's like it's what I like throughout the film, I feel like the audience is the entire time is like, Yeah, we're pretty confident that, you know, Molly did this. But there's <laughs> never any proof because it's always per- portrayed as fantasies. In that mm-hmm. moment you really see how how much of this was planned, whether or not, you know, she is aware that she was doing this because, you know, sometimes with trauma, you can almost yeah. create a second self that you aren't aware of. Yeah. Um, and you, and, and you lose time and stuff like in memory. Like I have, I have almost permanent memory issues related yeah. to that. So yeah, that's a thing. So like when she was like, you know, going about like, the, you know, she's been premeditating this is planning this and how she knows how she can get with these men. It, it would make it made it far more chilling to know like oh no shit this Molly has been doing this this is for sure been happening it wasn't just in her head but then it just combined with what's happening in the scene it's just so heartbreaking yeah i think there's a beautiful um thing happening in horror right now um in this vein where we are getting heartbreaking um killers especially like serial killers who are actually affecting. They're not just like, oh, they were, I mean, I don't want to be flippant, but you know, oh, they were abused as a kid. Oh, their mom was overly critical. You know, like Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. Like they're, um, a film that's coming to mind is Knife and Heart, mm-hmm. which is a movie that uh, came out in 2018. It's French. It is actually about a pornographer in a pornography studio. And I don't want to ruin it because it's hot. This you know, episode's not about that film, but I, there's like a little section at the end where you find out like where this killer came from and really who they were. And I cried, my partner cried, like, and you've just seen them do horrifying things to, to people who did not deserve it, to people who also had, you know, sad, traumatic stories. And you just, I, it's, it's such an interesting redeeming storyline without actually redeeming the killer. It's like, in the end, you know, isn't the issue in Knife and Heart, it's that a certain group of people are not being supported. That film is an LGBTQIA plus film. And in this movie, it's that these young girls were not being protected. You know, where was their safety net? Where was, you know, somebody before Molly became this, like, you know, pretty literal psycho? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, 100%. Like, I, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, a film like this often reminds me of why I like the horror genre, why I like what I'm looking for in a lot of exploitation films um because it's films like this that stick with me mm-hmm. um you know because the first i don't want to say the first but one of the earliest examples of a horror film that i remember seeing that made me feel something for the killer was was the uh, 1980s film maniac maniac you can lock your doors but you can't lock the madman out of your mind. Maniac. It will tear the life out of you. 
mm-hmm. because it was the first time that I had remember at that point seeing a film where you have this guy doing heinous things, um, but they give they like it's a character study into who he is and why he potentially get, try to get you an idea of why he's doing this, and you know, almost sympathetic, even though yeah. you don't agree with what he's doing, and. That was a turning point for me because I saw I had seen that right at the end of high school, right before I was going in the right before I was going to film school, and I was like, "Oh shit, you can do more with this genre than just you know <laughs> blood and guts, and you know you can you can make interesting films about terrible people and make you f- you know feel a multitude of different things and have good performances and." You know, so ever since I had seen that film, because that was a a big moment for me, which was also one of the Mm -hmm. video nasties, oddly enough. um, You know, I was I'm always kind of chasing that feeling again of I want a horror film that's gonna make me feel something. Don't get me wrong, and not just like a jump scare. Yeah, (laughs) and don't get me wrong, I you know I I love the genre, I love film. You know, I'll watch dumb movies because I I know they'll be fun. I know they'll Mm -hmm. be dumb. But it's you know it's it's saccharine. It's just you know it's it's sweet. It's sugar. It's it's a good time. But they don't stick with me. Yeah. I want something that's gonna stick with me. I don't even if I don't necessarily love the film. I want something that I'm like, man, that was a really well done whatever. Because I think that's what excites me, you know. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a tangent there, but yeah, like this this I'm gonna be thinking about this film for a while and. Um, Arrow Video just put out a really nice Blu-ray for it a couple of years ago, and I'm I'm thinking about picking it up just because I I, th- I think there's like some video essays on it and um, some film personalities I really like talking about, and I just want to I want to know more about it. Like yeah, I, same. I was like researching stuff about it, and it's just it's a <laughs> it's a film with a story, clearly. Yeah, and like I said, I, and just know, and it's not like it's a one-off director who went and made this film because while those mm-hmm. films are interesting. I think it's even more interesting that it's a filmmaker with a a history of making films that aren't quite anything like this mm-hmm. that made this almost like right in the middle of his career. Yeah. You know, cuz sometimes when you you see you see films like this in someone's uh filmography, it's like something it's like the first thing they did or maybe the last thing they did for this to come like right after you know, the biggest black exploitation film he did and then years before Glow, I'm like what brought you here? And then <laughs> even the, the 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 screenwriter behind it, um, Robert Tom, he was making exploitation films. His biggest mm-hmm. claim to fame was he wrote Death Race Two Thousand. Yeah. And I think even he was writing black exploitation films. Yeah, I think so too. He was. Um, yeah, definitely not necessarily in the horror genre. You know, if we even call this a horror film, but yeah. I, I do. It's, but I do. I, um, that's that's, a, that's yeah. a conversation for another day, but like it's it's a, it's as we said at Revenge Fest, it's a genre film, so it's, it's it's a genre film. It certainly is a genre film. So it works. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's I I'm happy that Criterion put it up. I wish I had seen it earlier. Um, same, same, frankly. So having said that, what, looking at the film, like I think if I were a younger person, like young, like very feminist Josephine in the early twenties, in my early twenties. Um, which are long behind me now, I'm not sure that I would feel the same way about this film. Like, I love it now, but I almost feel like I have to be where I am and to have seen some other movies um, 
to appreciate it because there is, you know, you see Molly's tits like every other scene. Um, You see, you know, I do, I do stand by that the sex, even the sex scenes are not filmed or the scenes are going to lead to sex are not filmed in like an exploitative way. No, they're, they're, they're filmed with, for lack of a better term, a gentle touch. Yeah, I think so. I think they are gentle. Even the scene where she's like setting them up for a threesome. I was like, this is like a tender uh, moment with these two very, you know, kind of skeevy guys. Honestly, that's Um, how I felt about The Last House on the Left with the way that Wes Wes Craven shot that film. Like it's, it's, there's heinous things happening in that film, Mm -hmm. but he handles it in a way that makes it more palpable, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like the way that these things are, it's, it's, it's less to do with, the actions themselves and more of how it's handled. And I think like, that's why I've always found it fascinating. This concept that you can, um, you know, you can have two different directors make the same film and they'll have two very different films. I don't know. I kind of lost myself there for a second. No, exactly. (laughs) I mean, they'll they'll have very different focuses. Like the movies will be about different things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like for being an exploitation filmmaker, like Matt Simber handled this film well. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and yeah, I'm just trying to think about what else. I mean, it's a you know predominantly white film mm-hmm. um, for two filmmakers who are very used to working with like black actors, um, not in the best you know genre all the time. But um, that was kind of interesting to me. But it's you know a, a fa- it ends up being a fascinating movie. And it, as a you know a 31 year old person now, I enjoy this movie. Yes, quite a bit. Yes, and actually, I I feel like I'm I'm right there with you. Where had I seen this film, um, early college or maybe even before mm-hmm. that? Like I, I don't know if I would have appreciated it. Mm-hmm. I feel like I needed, like you said, I need to see more movies, and that's why I'm a big advocate for rewatching things, and mm-hmm. um, also a big advocate for well, you can't. I try not to let one or two things that say bother me about a film whether it be depictions or what is what what's being shown necessarily pepper my entire opinion about it because there's more going on to it um because yeah i i feel like had i not seen all the weird avant-garde and experimental films i was subjected to in film school i don't know if i would appreciate this film as much as i do because i see more in films now because of having that um that language of cinema instilled in me. Yeah, definitely. Um, I will say seeing foreign cinema too, really. I mean, I, yeah. I kind of grew up watching foreign movies from the library, but uh-huh. I like, like the use of nudity, especially in this film feels so different to me than like uh, horror movies that were coming out in the early two thousands for the big screen. You know, a lot of like breasts popping out of shirts and things like that, then to get slashed, etc. But the, it's such a different feel and I do think that the whole, you know, kind of trope that Americans are so repressed and that because we're not comfortable with our bodies, we're not comfortable with seeing bodies, um, that shows up in film in really weird ways. Where like anytime there's a naked person, it's very perverted. I don't like, I don't feel comfortable with it all the time. But in this film, it really felt different. It was like, okay, this is like when Molly is, and that's another thing to go with her whole persona, that she has this persona when she's doing these attacks. When when Molly is naked, when she is undressed, she is her truest self. Like she's in her own skin and she is a different person than when she's wearing her, you know, the, the 70s button up patched shirts and she's being naive, kind of flippant Molly. You know, exactly. And I, I think part of what might be affecting like um, 
um, or creating that that feeling of like uh, her nudity is not exploitive, like it, like it is other times, is because it's so casual. Like mm-hmm. it's 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 there. They're not drawing attention to it. Um, yeah, there's no like close up brush. They treat it like a costume. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And another film, actually a foreign film that I saw very recently that I felt kind of did the same thing because there was a lot of nudity in the film, but it never felt exploitive was uh, Betty Blue, if you've seen mm-hmm. that film. Like, it's the yeah. same thing where it's like they treated nudity like a costume where it was less to do like, oh, look, there's a naked woman. And it was like, no, this is just how this character feels comfortable or how this character is. Yeah, that whole idea of nudity as a costume is a whole other thing. And also, um, I would even add to that the idea that Molly and that tattoo being nude with that tattoo as a costume like okay. tattoo as costume but I, it's making me think of um ari aster who is a filmmaker who i generally really enjoy i like his films i midsummer is one of my favorite films he has a real thing with um body horror in the sense that he's depicting human bodies as very horrific especially like elderly bodies and um you know anything that we in the past would have labeled a deformity um, he's very into exploiting that. And I think that has a, a, a totally different usage of nudity as a costume because in Midsummer, there's a scene where you see a lot of characters naked. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we're in past scenes, you saw them with their hair done and they were wearing these beautiful, you know, embroidered clothes. And it's it's a total character change. It's a total switch, which is interesting, but it's it's he's definitely playing up like this nudity as, and I do think that's like the American as well. It's like he's playing up this nudity as horrifying like, oh, these old bodies, they're disgusting. Like, you know, which isn't true, of course. We know, like, you know, human bodies are beautiful. But in Ari Aster's films, he's using this costume as a horrifying stand-in for, like, something else. Whereas in this movie, I feel like we do, all we're getting is a costume change. It's like, oh, she was wearing, you know, a button-up shirt in this scene, and now here are her naked breasts. And those are both legitimate. Neither is more horrifying than the other. It's just different. She's a different character now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's 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 perfect, and um, I hadn't put it together what you're talking about with Ari Aster and you know, I guess old person nudity, um, <laughs> but it honestly kind of reminds me of the same thing that Stanley Kubrick did in The Shining. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the the woman in the bathtub, who everyone tells me is like the most horrifying scene, it, it's a naked lady. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I mean, and, and like um, plus-sized bodies as well. Like, I'll just say fat bodies, like in Ari Aster's work, show up all the time as horrifying. Um, but it, it's, he doesn't draw as much attention to it, but once you start to notice it, it will start to bother you. Mm. Like, it's because, um, what was his other movie right before Midsummer? Um, the demonic one. Uh... Hereditary? Hereditary, thank you. In that film, there's actually tons of naked people, and I didn't even realize it until the second time I watched it because they're just like set pieces; they're just kind of in the background. And he uses a lot of like plus size bodies in that film to immediately show, like, oh, these are the bad people; these are, you know, these are bad uh, guys. And that bothers me now. Like having once you, like I said, once you see it, it's like, oh, this is very anti, you know, anti anything that's not skinny <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or fit or whatever. Yeah, honestly, in one film that while watching the the witch who came from the sea, one one mm-hmm. contemporary film that reminded me of, which will probably piss a lot of people off because he gets a lot of uh, vitriol online. It actually reminded me a lot of um, 
in terms of sometimes visual style to uh, Rob Zombie's film, Salem's uh, uh, Lords of Salem. I don't know if you've seen that yes, film. I have. Yeah. And um, I kept thinking of uh, what is that? Oh, yeah. See, I'm like now my memory's starting to go. But what is the movie with all the spirits, the house? And they're all like related to horoscopes. Casper. And there's like a <laughs> the Rob Zombie movie. Um, and they're all like, like there's a, one of them is a naked lady with like her tits like slashed. Um, um there, uh, 1000 ghosts. Is that a thing? 1000. There's uh 13 ghosts or is that the one? 13 ghosts. Maybe. I think that's it. That one. Cause it's like horoscopes, right? Yeah. I don't think that one was Rob Zombie though. Oh, well my point still stands. Um, <laughs> uh, no, you're totally right. That was Steve Beck. But, um, in any case that the usage of, um, nudity was kept calling up to me in, mm-hmm. uh, in this film as well. I don't think that's a great film. I'm not like recommending that movie, but yeah. <laughs> it did, it did occur to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know you, you're kind of on a crunch for time cause you got to get yeah. going, but yep. I think, I truly think this is a great film. And while I think for some people it might be a little too slow or maybe even a little too weird. Actually, I wouldn't say the film's slow at all. Like it, no. it, it moves at a good pace and the film's only like an hour and 23 minutes. So it's yeah. short. Um, I think it might be a little too weird for people because if you if you come into a movie like this expecting answers and wanting to know like, oh, that's why this is happening. That's why this is weird. You're not going to get it. You have to kind of put some faith in your own ability to dissect a film. Um, but if you go in with a little bit of patience, I think this film is extremely rewarding. And um, I truly do think it, it has crossover appeal for friends of mine who are more into... Um, you know, foreign and art house cinema. And I think it'll also mm-hmm. appeal to my friends who are more into the exploitation and horror side of things. Um, Definitely. And I truly think like, it's a, it's a beautiful film. Like while, while the cinematography is credited to Ken Gibb, a lit who'd go on to shoot porn. Like I, knowing Dean Kundi's style, like I can, I can't be, I'm not going to say like, Oh, I can tell what scenes he shot, but I can definitely feel his, the fact that he was involved. Which is yeah, the way definitely. that he frames frames things and moves the camera. Like, you know, you go watch this and then go watch Jurassic Park and you can feel that there's a similar <laughs> kind of movement there. Voice yeah. there. Yeah, I would agree. So, yeah, I'm really happy that you suggested this film. Thank you. Yes, I'm glad that we watched it. Thank you. Yeah, and um, like it's, I've, I've, I've learned you've been on the show now two and a half times. Mm-hmm. Um, only count, uh, one is a half because you came on for just a, a kind of like add on near the end. But whenever I Bonus. have you come on the show, you always bring something very unique and interesting for me to watch. And usually stuff that I've wanted to see, but you kind of push me into finally seeing it. And which is the whole point of the show. And it's <laughs> something that I've not stopped thinking. I've not stopped thinking about audition since I watched it. That's how I think it should be for everyone. Um, I think I'm not sure I told you this, but this was, that was our my second date with my partner. No, um, you did not tell me that. Yeah, so we our, my second date with him was I I go to these like film lectures, you know, at the Gene Siskel in downtown Chicago. Yeah, and I was like, hey, there's a lecture put on by the Art Institute of Chicago on this Japanese film. I didn't tell him anything about it. I think I was like, yeah, it's a Japanese film. It's actually a horror. Um, I want you to come watch it with me and then sit through this lecture afterwards. And I was like, this is the test of like, okay, like, is, is he going to stick around? He was excited about the lecture and he watched the movie and he loved it. And I was like, okay, I mean, taking a guy who you just started dating um, to a film about a woman who cuts a man's feet off, 
is like, you know, a, a risky move, a typical Josephine move, but a real risky one. And he stuck around. So um, that movie has now become like a litmus test for me of, you know, who, who I can trust, who can stick around. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny. Like the first movie I invited Amanda to and she didn't. And I wasn't necessarily thinking it was like, oh, this is like a witness test movie, but it was more so like, I just really want to see her and yeah. I'm going to see this movie regardless. Does she want to come? Was actually uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, <laughs> which might not have been a best film as a first date looking back on it. But like, I wasn't thinking. Um, but one of like, uh, one of the films I usually show people early on because it's a film that is really important to me is, is Halloween obviously, mm-hmm. and then uh, Drive, and I kind of see, like, depending mm-hmm. on how they feel watching this movie, we'll, we'll get an idea of how similar we might be in tastes, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I you know, I, I don't expect anyone to love all the movies I love, but oh, you can sit through it. I will say there are bad movies to invite people to as well. I mean, I, I was invited once on a date to see Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. as a first date, and I turned that down, and I never, never met him. I was like, no, I'm good. I don't want to that's I want to go to this movie with you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, and to be fair, I just want to put this out there. I don't believe that a movie as a first date is a good idea anyway, because you should like, talk to each other. Um, and also, I'm real nervous whenever I get in a theater with someone for the first time. So, like, you know, it's nice to just build the talk. So don't do that. That's my little Josephine's tip of the day. Don't take your new dates to a movie first thing. Do that second date. I I had I I have a reason for why I thought it was a good idea for a first date, but ultimately I agree with you. My whole reason was, <laughs> was I think it's it's it says a lot about two people if you can share silence with each other and just do something Definitely. together without saying anything. But then it yeah. gives you something to talk about afterwards. Um, so that was my thought. But my first date with Amanda lasted for eight hours, <laughs> right? and that, that was after the movie. So. Yeah, but regardless, regardless, um, The Witch Who Came From The Sea, I highly recommend. If you're on the fence about it, go to the Criterion channel right now and, and check it out. Or, you know, throw some money at physical media and buy it from Arrow. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, those I'm sure those, you know, essays and stuff have to be fantastic. Like, Yeah, like if, if you're not I... familiar with the writing of Stephen Thrower, he's mm-hmm. he's kind of a... Um, uh, quite a big name talking about regional filmmaking and uh, exploitation horror. He did a really big uh, coffee table book called Nightmare USA, which is all just about weird little regional films from the United States, which I love too because he's English, so mm-hmm. he's obsessed with the United States. Uh, he has a lot to say and he about, about films like this, and I think that the resurgence of films like this, I'm not going to give him all the credit, but I think have part to do with him giving so much love and faith behind them because he's been he was t- he's been talking about a lot of these films something like this for at least the last you know 10 15 maybe even 20 years so that's all I've i got. <laughs> i mean that's fantastic and i will say as far as like regional filmmaking goes um i think not just a resurgence of the vintage like forms of it like this you know the, this re-release or whatever release on streaming um i will say there are some fantastic filmmakers now who are making um you know, fantastic, what I would call regional films. And one mm-hmm. I want to call out is Monica Estrella Negra, who is a fantastic local filmmaker um, who's working between, I believe, Philly and Milwaukee and Chicago. And she's she's coming out with some fantastic horror. So another another recommendation. What was her name again? 
Monica Astria Negra. What was one of her? I can send you the name. Yeah, send me the name because I <laughs> I want to check out her stuff. Yeah, definitely. She's on and she's on Vimeo. Perfect. Well, was there anything else you wanted to say, Josephine, before you have to wrap up? No, I'm not. I have no new projects. I'm kind of um, I'm currently being targeted by the right wing, so I am not putting out anything i'm laying low so no i'm good so would you prefer if i just don't tag you in things no feel free to tag me i think things are okay right now i'm just not like pushing out new content okay well i just wanted to make sure (laughs) appreciate it all right well then uh i think that's all i've got so um the biggest thing i've got to say is we are building towards our 100th episode um and then this week we'll be starting a new giveaway to kind of hype for a future episode we're doing where me and nick will be doing a double feature of the original the fly and then david cronenberg's remake of the fly so i'm giving away two editions i've got two two little box sets one that has the original the fly and return of the fly and then the other one that's got david cronenberg's the fly and the sequel with eric stoltz interesting i will say the original fly um like the original one was one of the movies that first scared me as a child i don't blame you it's a kind of a frightening film like if you can i think i think one thing i think a lot of people have trouble with older films they have a hard time putting themselves in the mindset of when that film came out they're judging everything on contemporary standards Mm -hmm. if you think about like what movies were like in the 50s that movie's fucking frightening yep yep (laughs) and it's actually got gorgeous color cinematography so um but yeah, I'll let you go. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. And um, thanks for having me. If you see anything else weird that you're like, I need to talk to someone about this, let me know, and we'll we'll get something together. I'll let you know. Thanks, Mike. No, thank you. All right, I'll let you Bye. go. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye bye. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Vyers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Vyers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.